millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase.
Hello again and welcome to the Explaining History podcast and today I'm looking at an, an interesting aspect of the, the end of the British Empire in Southeast Asia uh, which was the, the kind of the tranche of the British Empire that collapses immediately uh, after the Second World War. Uh, obviously uh, parts of Africa hold on until the, the 1960s and 70s but it is the the kind of the uh, the, the the golden crescent from well, India and the golden crescent which is uh, obviously uh, what becomes uh, Bangladesh Burma uh, and that uh, curve all the way down through Malaya into uh, Singapore and um, it, it's a, a, a place uh, that's been written about um, by two historians, um, Tim Harper and Christopher Bailey, in their kind of um, two-part uh, amazing series, Forgotten Armies and Forgotten Wars, which uh, runs from um, the the fall of Singapore all the way through to the end, really the end of the British Empire in Asia, uh, the loss of India, um, all the way through the Second World War and the, the Malayan uh, emergency. Um, it's it, it, there is something really interesting about this explosion of nationalism at the end of the Second World War, and there are there are multiple reasons for it. Um, the 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 loss of India uh, in nineteen thirty nine isn't necessarily written in the stars. There's obviously a very very strong um, uh, independence or at least home rule movement, but. Um, certain events during the Second World War, the uh, inability of the British to evidence that they could protect their Asian colonies, the appalling treatment of um, Burmese and Indian people by the British in the face of, of Japan's advances, uh, Indian uh, people living in Burma uh, were left essentially to walk to Assam uh, and were, there was uh, a whites-only policy for ships uh, leaving Burmese ports. Um, the fact that um, the, uh, the the British were were wrong-footed by Japan, uh, and also that um, Japan, where where Japan conquered, Japan introduced nationalist regimes. Um, Aung San, for example, in in Burma and in in, in the Dutch East Indi in Indies, uh, Sukarno uh, was a, 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 a nationalist figure. The reason why Japan did this is that um, Japan imagined that uh, the the nationalism, the Burmese nationalism, Vietnamese nationalism, um, uh, Indonesian uh, nationalism would be a, a tool by which um, the they the Japan could be seen as a kind of a leader of a a, a pan-Asian federation uh, rejecting white European colonialism of course this is a kind of a, a, a two-headed thing and very quickly nationalist movements in all these countries don't like uh, the uh, the fact that they're being colonised by the Japanese that this isn't some kind of liberatory moment this is uh, Japan's empire in Asia and they discover that whatever brutalities they experienced under Europeans Japan was capable of even greater savagery uh, and and kind of uh, asset stripping of their of their countries 
So you wind up this situation where um, nationalist leaders like Aung San in uh, Burma gamble on the idea that they can re-ally themselves with European powers to rid themselves of the Japanese in the knowledge that probably Europeans won't be able to return to their countries in the way that they had previously done before the war. And he is correct in that, uh, that assumption. Um, so what we're going to do now is we're going to look at Forgotten Wars by Harper and Bailey and start to delve into this explosion of post-war nationalism um, that manages to, to wrongfoot the British um, and um, leads to the very quick collapse of their Asian empire. As Harper and Bailey explain, the British were relying on Indian manpower to help reconquer their empire and they were going to be disappointed. So, they write. The great force that now embarked on reconquering British Asia saw itself as a new forgotten army. British India provided the bulk of its manpower. The subcontinent was seething with discontent, directed and channeled by the Indian National Congress, whose leaders the British had reluctantly released from jail as the war drew to its close. Official monitors reported that local people were relieved that the fighting had ended, but were too exhausted and apprehensive about the future to indulge in anything more than perfunctory celebration. Indians, Burmese and Malayans were also horrified by the barbarity they had witnessed during the war's ending and the future dangers it portended. The Bengal press advisor reported to the governor that people believed the situation did not call for such indiscriminate havoc, that the readiness to use such means had lowered the moral prestige of the United Nations, the United Nations obviously being... Um, how, the, the, sort of the, the umbrella term that the Allied powers were known as before, obviously, the official founding of the United Nations. The fiery nationalist apparatchik Sardar Vallabhai Patel, uh, General Secretary of the Indian National Congress, commented that entire cities, children, the old, animals and all have been wiped out. What a demonstration of the limitless cruelty of Western civilization. Ominously, he went on to link Western barbarism with what he saw as the British attempt to perpetrate differences between Hindus and Muslims in India. Lord Wavell, Viceroy of India and Patel's main sparring partner, agreed about the atomic bomb. Obviously, this is what Patel was referring to. It's not a weapon that any thinking man would willingly have put in the hands of the present day world. Indians asked themselves what was the point in condemning German and Japanese atrocities if the Allies themselves were prepared to massacre civilians on such a massive scale. Others were concerned with the political as well as the moral implications of the atom bomb. Would it exist as so, was its existence so hugely increased the imbalance of power between West and Asian peoples that the mirage of independence would once again vanish? A Bengali newspaper wondered if the Asiatic people would not pass from the hands of one group of pirates to another. Aung San, leader of Burmese resistance against the British and then the Japanese, vowed that no atom bomb can stop our march towards freedom. Now this is a really interesting perspective, isn't it? You have nationalist leaders in Burma and India looking aghast at the, the dropping of the atomic bomb and then drawing conclusions of, 
well, will this thing be used by European powers to bolster their empires? Will, you know, one of these, will a, would a bomb like this be used on India if it looked like the British were going to use India, lose India, a big pun? And it's, at the time, from that perspective, a relevant and pertinent question. What the British did not immediately appreciate was the extent to which Asian nationalism had been transformed by the war. Before it, there had been no, there had been movements of civil disobedience across India and Burma. Peasant farmers had been goaded into revolt by the sufferings of the depression of the 1930s. Terrorist movements had flickered in Bengal, and pan-Islamic ideologues had stirred the passions of faithful uh, throughout Asia. Comintern had sponsored fledgling communist parties in Burma and Malaya, where trade unions had flexed their muscles in industrial areas. The Japanese war, however, had given nationalism a new face, a youthful militaristic one. Before the Second World War, Burma had been granted a form of semi-independence by the British. It had its own flag and its own prime minister, but it had no proper army. What passed for Burma's defence forces, comprised of recruits from almost exclusively minority peoples, the Karen, the Kachin, the Shan and the Chin, along with resident Anglo-Burmese, Gurkhas and Indians. Burmese Buddhists had effectively been excluded from the army since the final conquest of the country in 1886. The reason given was the Buddhists were too pacific, a fiction contradicted by Burma's impressive military traditions. The real reason was that the soldiers from minorities were cheaper and friendlier to the British Raj. During the war, all this had changed. With Japanese support, Burma had created its own army, the Burma Independence Army, renamed the Burma Defence Army after the Japanese invasion, and then the Burma National Army after Japan's installation of a nominally independent Burmese government in August 1943. One day in March 1945, the BNA had revolted against the embattled Japanese forces, hoping finally to secure real independence before the British reoccupied the country. By now, the Burmese had military heroes as well. The young and intense former student leader, Aung San, had become the Bogyuk, or um, the general. He was the first Burmese leader since uh, General Mahabandula in 1826 to embody the military spirit um, of the Burmese people and to be known and admired across the country. Aung San and his 30 comrades had marched into Rangoon with the Japanese in early 1942. The contrast between uh, uh, these young men in uniform and the civilian politicians of the British area, Balmore and Usao, uh, was obvious to the Burmese youth. Volunteers signed up in healthy numbers. Moreover, the war forged links between the cities and the countryside as, armies, uh, as the armies billeted on, um, on the villages. When the British moved back into North Burma in 1945, they were faced with a militarised countryside, populated by volunteer levies, many of whom identified with socialist or communist thinking of the metropolitan radicals. In short, what you can say is that by the time the British returned to Burma, a social revolution has happened. This is why Burma is therefore ungovernable after the uh, after the war to some extent the british empire has you know can only function on a a degree of consent um that people have to accept their british rulers uh, or the british use their tried and tested tactic of, of kind of divide and rule effectively which uh which is how you know this 
relatively small island managed to govern such a large area of territory. But but if you take the case of Burma, and we'll look at India again in a moment, um, the the Japanese had um, created had tried tried to create a client state out of a colony and to create a client state you have to create the institutions of state you have to create a a modern army you have to create certain kind of ideas and beliefs and principles in the people serving in that army um, in order for uh, them to fight uh, in the way that the Japanese wanted them to fight i.e. to um, uh, ally themselves with the occupying Japanese to fend off any European kind of counter invasion. However, the Japanese um, were unable to kind of sustain the the sort of the deception, if you will, uh, of the uh, the young um, uh, Burmese uh, soldiers who had become increasingly politicized, increasingly. Um, uh, kind of motivated by a, a vision of a new kind of country that they could obtain, um, and the, the the Japanese were uh, un, unable to to control them. Further down the crescent in Malaya, the Inquite uh, Muslim Malay nationalism was on the move. It had its roots in movements of reaction to the notion, endlessly reiterated by British officials, scholars and educators, that the Malays were custom-obsessed, docile and passive. This myth of the lazy native was challenged in the 1930s by movements of religious and community uplift and by a phenomenal expansion of newspapers and periodicals that debated the future of the Malay race. Malay martial pride was rekindled, and even as the Malay regiment all but perished in a heroic last-ditch defence of Singapore. Again, this this is really interesting. Um, If you look at Benedict Anderson's uh, work on on nationalism, which is obviously the, 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 the seminal text, Imagine Communities, nationalism always predates it always it sort of follows an expansion in literacy an expansion in publishing um, when you get a, a polity let's take well, let's take Malaya for an, for an example a colony which is very sultanates kind of bolted together by the British um, that has no innate kind of national identity has lots of sort of regional identities um has no no innate national identity well the national identity forms in this case through the kind of the interlinking of people within that polity through a a new system of media that disseminates a new system of political and national ideas Nations are, are not these kind of magical sacred things that that, that, that spring from the ground. They are in, invented concepts uh, and they they rise and they fall, they come and they go. Um, they are um, cohesive at some points and fragmentary at, at others. Um, the Malay rulers were not the effete figureheads, pitiful Neros, squalid and insignificant, in one description, that most British imagined them to be, and they guarded their privileges jealously, not least their status as the heads of the Islamic religion. A wealthy state such as Johor, uh, just across the causeway from Singapore, 
could embark on its own programme of modernisation, Sultan Ibrahim, who'd ruled Johor since 1895, had looked to Meiji Japan as a model, as had his father before him. Incentives were also coming increasingly from commoners, especially the new caste of clerks and school teachers. The more radical of those looked to Japan as well, but as a nation state and an anti-Western force. In 1937, they found the, uh, the, the Malayu or Muda, or the League of Malay Youth, uh, which, le- uh, which led and orchestrated by the civil servant and journalist Ibrahim Haji Yakub, ran an underground intelligence network for the Japanese military. Ibrahim used Malay prostitutes in the northern town of Kotabaru to coax information about the coastal defences uh, from, Brit- from British clients. It was here that Yamashita had made his initial landings um, on the Pantai Chinta Barahi, the beach of passionate love, on the northern coast of Malaya in December 1941. When the British rounded up 150 supporters of the movement shortly afterwards, they included 15 bartenders and cabaret taxi dancers. The Malays who assisted the Japanese were not to receive the same rewards as, as Ong San and his 30 comrades. The Japanese held a similarly patronising view of the Malays at the, uh, to that of the British, but the Malay youths received the same kind of training as the Burmese and the Malay, and Malay nationalism. Um, the, the Malay nationalism that, uh, that emerged from the war would have the same radical potential. In the words of one of the central figures of these years, Mustafa Hussein, although the Japanese occupation was described as one of, the, one of severe hardship and brutality, it left something positive, a sweet fruit to be plucked and enjoyed only after the surrender. This was also a nationalism that did not necessarily recognise the old colonial boundaries. Mustafa Hussein and Ibrahim Yacoub had dreamed of merging their people into a greater Malay nation that would include the vast population of Indonesia. So the, the analogy of, of uh, the, the sweet fruit that was left behind is, is a, 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 an interesting one. Um, and I, I think in this case, um, it, it's almost a, a sort of J- Japan's final kind of bitter, bitter pill injected into the British Empire. Um, the uh, original reason for the war in um, Southeast Asia not so much the war in China, but the war in Southeast Asia uh, was to rid Asia of European powers, to cement ja- Japan as the kind of the, the Asian hegemonic power. Um, in previous decades, more kind of um, less fascistic notions of, of, of Japanese nationalism prevailed, and, and they said essentially that a... a a, a liberated Asia under Japanese tutelage, because obviously the Japan, Japan from the Meiji Restoration onwards, had created the infrastructure and eco- economic power and military power, um, bureaucratic power, in order to um, uh, do such things as defeat Russia in the 1905 or so Japanese War, um, and, and uh, Japan saw itself as Asia's leader to um, freedom uh, out of colonization um, the so, so the idea of sweeping away European powers had always always been there the 
the kind of the the racialized, brutal, monstrous nature of Japanese colonialism. Um, that it, that kind of comes slightly later, though probably there was an, always a strand of that in Japan's thinking. To to give you an example of how uh, Asian people suffered during the war, our images of uh, Japanese brutality come from things like Bridge on the River Kwai, and yes, uh, white European soldiers uh, were, were treated appallingly as prisoners. Um, but they account the the they account for one percent of the deaths inflicted by Japan on Asia. So the the, the soldiers, the, the the Australian, the British, the um, uh, Dutch uh, soldiers who built the Burma Railroad. For every one of those that died, there were ninety nine Asians. So Harper and Bailey write, the much larger and older forces of Indian nationalism had also been galvanised by the war. The leaders of the Indian National Congress, the main nationalist movement, had witnessed the surge of popular anti-colonialism during the Quit India movement of 1942, which is, is as close to a kind of a national uprising against the British uh, as it's possible to get. Gandhi's largely non-violent mass protest against the continuing British presence had been particularly intense in Bengal and the eastern areas of the country, where people had experienced real hardship during the war and had seen with their own eyes the humiliation of the British Raj by the Japanese invaders. Um, the, there, there has been various accounts I've read recently which suggest that the Quit India campaign, the explosion of anger against the British, coincided with, uh, with massive inflation caused by the war um, India had to radically remodel and reshape its economy uh, to become a, a, this kind of powerhouse of war production um, and of course subsequently uh, this leads to uh, inflate, commodity inflation they felt perhaps for the first time a sense of mass nationalism unifying student and shopkeeper peasant and small landlord man and woman and that's a sort of significant point that um the, the, the this kind of unifying unifying sense that uh, everybody was uh, incorporated beyond kind of class and caste and gender division in some sort of uh, national moment some sort of um national endeavor when you kind of have those experiences and people began to conceive of the nation, the, the nation is sort of born at that point um, uh, and, and everything else is, it becomes a kind of a, a, rearguard a rearguard action by the people that are soon to be booted out. They had ample time to ponder on the lessons of the movement. 14,000 of the 60,000 demonstrators and political activists arrested in August and September 1942 were still in jail in 1944 and the leadership remained imprisoned until near the end of, nearly at the end of the war. When they were finally released on the 15th of June 1945, um, Nehru, and their, uh, Nehru Patel and their socialist um, colleague Jay Narayan uh, emerged determined to make up for lost time. At a speech in September 1945, an impatient Nehru threatened to set the country alight. For his part, Patel resurrected the spirit of 1942 as soon as he was released. 
a final push was necessary to force the British out of India. And this time, unlike 1942, the armed forces, police and lower government services, uh, uh, servants, all on the verge of striking for better paying conditions, were also determined to see the back of the British. At the end of the war, Indian soldiers who had uh, fought for India, not for Britain, that's not how they saw it, they had fought for India, um, saw themselves uh, saw themselves as um, servants of India, not of the British Raj. So once again, a kind of social revolution had happened in uh, India in a slightly different way, not one manufactured by Japan, but one that was the product of inevitable processes that took place as a result of the war itself. And there's no way of putting the genie back in the bottle. It can't be done. You can't sort of suddenly take nationalist ideas out of people's minds and make them go back to how things were. Um, and also, um, the and I'll cover this in a later podcast, the British attempts to put uh, Subhas Chandra Bose's Indian National Army um, veterans on trial is a terrible misstep. Obviously, Subhas Chandra Bose and the Indian uh, the Indian National Army were the army uh, that um, fought, uh, believing they were liberating India, and fought alongside the, the Japanese. They were put on, on trial for treason at the end of the war, and many, many Indians looked on them, even if they thought they would be misguided, they looked on them with a degree of sympathy, thinking, well, you were trying to liberate the country from the British, and you wind, they wind up in a situation where virtually nobody, uh, th th there isn't a jury in the land that will convict them. At that point, it's clear that the, the British have lost control of the situation. The British are fa face mutinies in countless Indian regiments, and the British lose control over parts of the rest of their Asian empire because they realise very quickly they cannot send Indian soldiers to Singapore or Malaya or anywhere else in order to suppress nationalist movements because not only do Indian soldiers broadly have sympathy with uh, nationalist movements in Malaya but they want to remain in India in order to liberate India. So more on that to come, and I do recommend it. By the way, some you know, you know, there are certain books that I particularly talk about. But Forgotten Wars and Forgotten Armies. If you if you want to understand the end of the British Empire in Asia, the there are few better books uh, than this. Do remember to check us out at explaininghistory.org. Um, I've been adding new content to the site, particularly for students. It's uh, I'll put a link down below. Um, and we've got some fantastic interviews coming up in the next few weeks, so uh, keep your eyes out for them. Anyway, um, thanks so much for listening and um, allowing me to talk about one of my favourite books, and I will catch you on the next Explaining History podcast. Thanks very much. All the best. Bye-bye.
Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.